Right on Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody. We're back with Jason Scott. Jason Scott is the founder and owner of Feral Fungi, where he produces mushroom medicines through the practice of traditional laboratory alchemy. Right now, we're near, very near, the headquarters of Feral Fungi, deep in the beautiful jungles of mysterious place in Oregon. Jason's an, Jason's an herbalist and mycologist. The foundation in ethnobotany and alchemy. He's contributed writings to various books, including Radical Mycology by Peter McCoy and Verdante Gnosis, Volume 3, on the topics of alchemy and mycology together. Hello, Jason. Hey, Jake. How's it going? That's <laughs> great. Thank you so much for letting me come to this beautiful location, um, undisclosed secret location. It's technically area area 777. This is where the mushroom magic happens. So, <laughs> Jason, I, I'm really glad you're here today. I want to talk to you. Well, I want to talk to you about everything that you're about. I want to get your thoughts on everything. I really want to know more about alchemy and, and everything that you're about. Mycology, alchemy, all of these things, pagyrics, all of these things together. But the first thing we're going to talk about is Jason. You see, Jason feels like, actually, he doesn't feel like he knows that he's a modern-day alchemist. Now, for people that are thinking, wait, I thought alchemy was this kind of ancient practice that fell off somehow or somehow lost history. No. The alchemical teachings, the process has never stopped. What I've always learned is that the alchemists were the original scientists. So we have the scientists, the psychologists of today, but in, you know, not even really ancient times, but not, you know, 500 years ago, these humans were doing these same experiments with their materials and the environment around them. They were calling themselves alchemists. Well, Jason is here and he's a modern alchemist, which I find so fascinating because he's continuing a tradition. So I'd like to talk to, talk to you about a little bit about that, Jason. Tell me, what is alchemy to you? Yeah, well, you know, first off, um, I humbly refer to myself as an amateur alchemist. Uh, <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Uh, or, or at the most, a practitioner of the spagyric arts, which we'll get <laughs> into a little bit about what, what spagyrics are in a little bit here. Sure, but, sure. But yeah, I mean, just kind of diving right into where you started, you know, alchemy really is the foundation for a lot of our modern sciences. All of the the modern disciplines of science that we know and recognize today really evolved out of the practice of traditional alchemy. And when I refer to traditional alchemy, I'm speaking of the hermetic sciences that we can trace back to ancient Egypt, um, but probably go further back than that, you know, kind of in line with the mysterious nature of the things that you uh, talk about here on your podcast. So you're thinking even pre-Diluvian Atlantean cultures, you know, you're talking uh, Hermes Trismegistus 
as this uh, emissary of this knowledge. Would you say that's it's coming from that ilk? The Hermes yeah. gives us ilk, like those exactly. ancient cultures that are just lost to prehistory. Well, pre- precisely. And, and in the West, with the Western tradition of alchemy tracing back to Egypt, that information was transmitted to the people of that time through, as you mentioned, Hermes Trismegistus and other gods. Um, very similarly to the stories that we get coming out of the East with systems like Ayurveda that parallel alchemy really closely, where you can trace them back as far as you can, but you know the the initial kind of story is that those those wisdom and that knowledge came from the gods passing them down to the people um, in Ayurveda through through Mount Kailash. Um, but yeah, so there's a really mysterious kind of underpinning to to really the beginnings of of where that alchemical knowledge um, d- first developed. But really, it was just seekers, though, like us. And like our listeners, there's people that were hungry for knowledge. They saw their environment around them and they knew there was more to it. And they found by experimenting with not even these substances, just their environment around them, that they were able to create these healing uh, healing medications, the uh, spiritual healing. And, and, and of course, alchemy is not just about the material development. It's also about spiritual development as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, you know, it's like a manipulation of materials is really where, um, where the alchemical tradition started is, uh, focused in transmutation is how, how do we kind of break down philosophically and practically the building blocks of nature and able to work with them to, um, understand nature more wholly. So, so really, you know, when I talk about alchemy and when I, when I get into the, the um, philosophy and the practice, what you're looking at is those first people were seekers, as you mentioned, and they were really just learning from the natural patterns of nature, right? They were learning from, okay, well, if you watch the water, you know, evaporate and then condense into the air and then come back down and you have a more purified, rectified water that you're getting, and how do we replicate that in a smaller scale in the form of like a still, you know, so so really the initial people who were practicing were observing nature and watching the natural patterns and learning about kind of the building blocks, the elements, quite literally the elements of fire, earth, air, and water, and learning how they kind of worked and melded together in order to um, to kind of solidify or condense into the life that we, that we experience. So do you think that then these original alchemists started with the material understanding first and then applying that to their spiritual development or do you think it was twofold where they saw the patterns in nature and then instantly knew to apply them to their spiritual self well i think you know a lot of times especially these days uh the those two practices the physical practice and the spiritual practice kind of get separated mm-hmm. um where i don't think that traditionally that was the case and i don't think you know, modernly, I don't think that's really the case either. Is like you can't really separate that spiritual side from the physical side. It's kind of an illusion to be able to do that. And when you're working through the alchemical practices and working through the alchemical um, processes, the things that you're you're doing to the materials are on a metaphysical and spiritual level, kind of reflexively being done to you as well. So it's kind of like this co-evolutionary process where you're helping to evolve the material that you're working with by um, basically using the natural processes inherent um, in the natural world 
and then just applying them to the material to kind of uh, aid in the evolution. You know, so Aristotle has has a line of thought where he talks about the the accidental and the substantial form. So that's kind of a, a primary building block of the alchemical practice, whereas everything has kind of its its seed of like how it how it's supposed to be. I kind of use the analogy of like imagine in the acorn that seed and that 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 blueprint for the oak that can grow out of it. And and in that acorn there's the potential for a perfect oak tree that's completely balanced but then you get the accidental form which kind of comes through the um the environmental influences so to speak so it's like if you're in a really windblown area then it might be kind of swept to one side or if you're in a really nutrient depraved area then that tree might kind of grow like fangled and not really quite as healthy and strong as that blueprint so kind of through the tradition and the practice of alchemy what we're really trying to get at in the most gross sense is that we're trying to take something that has expressed itself through its accidental form by developing through the natural world and, and kind of bring it back and elevate it back closer to its um, more substantial form. Dude, that was like the most beautiful explanation. Holy cow. Like I totally grasp alchemy now in a way that I, I, I guess I did have that understanding, but you just really kind of fleshed it out in a deeper way. So you're helping these materials achieve their perfect form through the alchemical process and their, you know, their growth and development has been influenced by their environment, but the potential is there for them to be in their perfect form. So you look at the human and the human being in the spirit and you see that the spirit was a seed or a human was a seed, a child. And through environment, you know, they were, maybe they were windblown, right? Exactly. <laughs> but there's the potential in there for them to have their most perfect form and it takes discipline and development. Right. So that, that kind of interplay between the material and the person and, and through that philosophy is like you're, you're working on the material, but you're not doing anything unnatural to the material. You're not kind of forcing the material into a way that it wouldn't, theoretically already be going is you're just helping to catalyze the process to its more substantial form if that makes sense and, and then bringing it back into the human side of it too it's like you mentioned the wind blown is like we experience traumas and we experience things through our lives that kind of direct us and maybe uh, the struggles that we experience that kind of like define us to certain degrees but then you know most people are working to transcend those struggles and to be, become a better person because of it. So it's not to say that those things aren't important, but it's part of the evolutionary process. But if we can consciously focus on and, and practice through, um, through the, the struggles or the hands that were dealt, then we can kind of influence our own evolutionary process. So almost you could say that the situations that you go through in your life, you know, the terrible things, the good things, they are the, chart the the course of your alchemical evolution whether you realize it or not you could be completely ignorant to alchemy and all the things related to it but yet if you're focused on personal development in a way you're going through the alchemical process for sure and i think you know i think that's kind of where uh modernly we kind of misunderstand alchemy because i think a lot of people when they think of the term alchemy it's really this uh 
kind of obfuscated term that you, you kind of visualize guys in the 1700s with big beakers and like long curly hair and you know they're wearing these like period clothes like 1700s clothes and they're just like <laughs> oh, and you're like some kind of like a rembrandt or a like an old painting from back in the day and they're just like oh the alchemist you know? right right yeah or somebody who's just trying um futilely to transmute lead into gold yes, right and, yes and just very focused it, it kind of gets um often it kind of gets relegated to that that area and the more practical kind of everyday application of how we can work on the materials or how the laboratory alchemy kind of reflexively affects us kind of get over gets overlooked you know the the Jungian perspective of alchemy and kind of like the new age um, perspective of alchemy coming in like the late 19th century really kind of took it out of the practical realm and put it more into like a the psychological psychological realm. realm. So what would you say in, you know, what is the Carl Jungian perception of uh, alchemy from your perspective? Um, well, you know, I've done a lot more studying of the traditional alchemical works, sure. kind of Paracelsus, um, a lot of the works of Paracelsus and Flamel and um, the fellow named Jabir, who's a, an Arabian alchemist and um, people who are who are really looking at both sides. So I feel like Young's work has a lot of um, potency and validity, especially especially when it comes to understanding the psyche and the development of psyche. Um but how does he relate to alchemy, I guess? So I, I would say that he kind of took it out of the realm of saying like, oh, well, these all of these laboratory practices are, are just metaphors for what we're experiencing on more of like a psycho-spiritual type of level and kind of dismisses them altogether. I see. He took the psycho-spiritual and put it in the laboratory to give it validity through the laboratory filter in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, or, or, or to say that, you know, the laboratory practices weren't really practical and and what they were doing is alluding to this psycho-spiritual process which in reality i think it's both right i think right, it's a psycho-spiritual pro pro process as well as the laboratory practice sure sure but i mean alchemy though do you feel like it's practiced by a lot of people or are there a lot of people like yourself that consider your their self uh you said did you say amateur am or uh uh, what was your title that you gave yourself? I'm sorry. For well, I, no, it's all good. Uh, well, I call myself an amateur alchemist. There I it feel, is. I amateur feel like, alchemist. You know, I feel like uh, pretty hesitant to use heavy <laughs> titles like and go around saying I'm an alchemist. Ah, it's fun. Why? But, not? I, <laughs> <laughs> but know, uh, pe people do you. that. It's not really my. Sure, it's not sure, really sure, my sure. Ammo. But there, it, would you say there's a thriving alchemist community? I would say more so than there has been. Um, okay. You know, so I think the history of alchemy is really interesting and kind of uh, dips and weaves throughout um, people's awareness. And as I mentioned, most people's r relation to it is just like, Oh, well there's like a handful of people in the 16th, 17th century that were trying to turn lead into gold. And most of those people were just, uh, were just charlatans that were trying to make money. And I think um, there's a lot more people these days who are being drawn towards the alchemical process, um, especially in in regards to processing herbs and getting into some of the deeper like mineral and metal works, um, and and its potency and its potential towards medicine. And I think there's a handful of people that are kind of driving that um, that awareness and that that uh, kind of interest back up. You know, my sure. my teacher um, Robert Bartlett. 
I really love the way he teaches his class, but um, Robert Bartlett's up in Marysville, Washington, and he is a fantastic human being, just really humble and really knowledgeable and, and really dedicated to his art and his craft. And, and he started um, uh, it, at the Paracelsus Research Society in Salt Lake City, Utah in the 70s, I believe, um, on his alchemical journey. And, and that lineage you can trace all the way back to kind of like the foundations of the alchemical practice but he carries this wisdom and this knowledge in such a humble way and he is kind of like in my mind the epitome of um a, a great person to learn from both the, the epitome of modern alchemy you would say in a way uh, you know i i would i would say so um okay i don't think he would necessarily consider himself that but again i think he just has a kind of a humble way about himself where he carries that wisdom in such a in such a humble way that it's really easy for him to transmit it. And I would think that most people who kind of stumble across the path of alchemy, like I did, um, are really benefited by being able to study and work with him. Um, and the kind of like tradition and the way that he sees thing, but there's, there's a whole, you know, it's not a myopic, like that's the only way that you can learn about alchemy is by studying with him. There's a lot of different ways and there's ways of going back and reading through and translating some of the old um, obscured texts and learning how those things um, are kind of practically applied. And so, yeah, I think there's a whole movement, you know, and it's, it's really interesting to me, especially where my main two interests are in, are in the alchemical tradition and then, and then the mycological tradition um, or mycological studies, the sciences of mycology and mushrooms, where I think both of those um, fields are kind of having this moment in time, you know, where maybe they're not the most forward and most popular, but there's definitely kind of a renaissance, so to speak, about them, um, kind of an awareness of the practices coming back into play. So do you think that is because people are just generally seeking more spiritual information they're they're seeking to develop themselves and they're setting up this attractive force and wherever they're at in their life they're then attracting that alchemical energy into their lives and then they're meeting people like the people that you met your great teacher and then also other teachers that are out there and maybe teachers that have long left the earth for a while sure yeah well i mean i i definitely think that's part of it i i know for my own journey that was definitely a part of it is like i never really sought out alchemy um it kind of stumbled across me or i stumbled across it and and um and was really fascinated because to me i was at that time i was really kind of getting into the roots of ethnobotany kind of like cultural relationships to herbs um, and plants and specifically like herbalism and natural medicine and how we relate to plants um, culturally in those ways. And I was getting really into like processing medicines, right? How do you make like tinctures and how do you make other herbal types of extracts? And to me, it was like it was missing something when I first started learning about it. So it was like there's like this whole world of, of Western herbalism and modern herbalism. And a lot of it is really um, kind of allopathic and for those who maybe don't know that term it's like it's really a myopic perspective of saying like oh well this herb is good for that so we just use it unequivocally for that thing and it's it's a really you know as as um my good friend bren would say too you know it's like it's a really uh 
limited way of looking at herbs and natural medicines. And I felt that way um, as a whole when I just kind of began my journey on into the herbal worlds and the herbal realms. And when I stumbled across alchemy, there was like a whole framework of how everything is perceived as living and how you look at these natural beings and how the different pieces kind of come together from from the um, their morphology and and the cosmology of the story of of matter and how it came to be and and within that context it it just opened up my herbal practice and especially my my um, processing practice of like how do we how do we make more effective medicines it really just kind of opened that door and I really loved it because it had both the physical side, which I was really interested in, in the way of like making tinctures and, and applying herbal medicines to people. And then also the more esoteric and, and psycho spiritual and metaphysical side where you're also having a reason and a cosmology, like a story for why you're putting these things together the way that you're putting them together or taking them apart the way that you're taking them apart. So from what I understand, and, it, and it's okay if you don't remember because I don't remember because somebody told me, but there's seven stages of alchemy. Is that correct? Yeah. There's in a, there's the general a of, alchemi- alchemical sense or is that just one school of thought? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it, for the practical laboratory work, there's seven stages um, and then there's 12 uh, cycles as well. I Honestly, I'm pretty bad with recalling them right off the top of my That's head. That's okay. Me too. But like uh, t- distillation, <laughs> sublimation, putrefaction, calcination. That's way are, more. Than yeah. <laughs> so, so those are a handful. And, and okay. those, those things, again, they kind of have a dual, dual meaning. So whereas like Jung might talk about those things and just relegate them purely to a psycho-spiritual process, um, what the you know a practicing alchemist might do is take those things, see how they're applied in the laboratory to the material that you're working with, like plants or mushrooms, and then also see the psycho-spiritual process. So I guess we can segue a little bit and talk about spagyrics, because I know you're very much involved in spagyrics, and you, your company, Feral Fungi, you produce pr- spagyric products. So tell me, first, before we delve into spagyrics, what, what is spagyrics like how would you explain that to somebody in a very basic sense yeah so the whole uh framework of spagyrics is a pretty big and kind of i feel like with any um sort of philosophical thought is like you can go down rabbit holes that that last forever (laughs) and you can kind of talk about multiple different aspects of it but um i I always kind of start on the most basic sense so the the term spagyric was coined by a Swiss um, alchemist or Swiss chemist fellow named Paracelsus. Um, that's probably what most people. His recognize. name keeps coming up. Who is this Paracelsus guy? Yeah. Uh, Sorry to interrupt your flow of thought, but I just keep hearing Paracelsus. I want to know who Paracelsus is. Yeah, um, it's all good. His his <laughs> um, his given name was Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. Um, he oh, was, the dude, my neighbor had that name. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Crazy. Super common name. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, his his father was a, a theologian of the of the time in the 1500s, so the 16th century, and he, you know, to put it shortly, he was a a, a Swedish chemist, a Swiss chemist, and was basically like the 
the vagabond chemist like he was like the he's known as the modern of iatrochemistry so like modern pharmaceuticals and he really did a deep dive into the alchemical tradition and how to really create um as he would put it medicines for metals and and men so he was really kind of taking this alchemical tradition and putting it back into a, a practical application whereas th at this time in history it had kind of slipped away and had really become that kind of thing that we were talking about earlier where there was a lot of um a lot of charlatans and a lot of people who were just kind of like oh well the ultimate goal is to make lead into gold and then i can be rich and famous and well known so meanwhile he, uh, nobody told those guys about inflation back yeah, then yeah you're right <laughs> and and then he so he really took that and br brought it back into being about medicine right so he was really like well the the real goal of this alchemical practice is that we can produce these medicines and and you know maybe the transmutation is a is a byproduct of that or is like a result of that but um but really what we're looking at is we're making effective medicines and so he would travel around um in the 16th century to the schools and the medical establishments of that time and challenge the doctors um and the the medical establishments and burn the the textbooks and and really he was um very bombastic which is a term that we actually get from from his name Theophrastus oh, wow. bombast holy cow yeah. They say the name again. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Theophrastus Bombastus um, von Hohenheim is his <laughs> full name, but wow. he was a very bombastic character, right? So he would he would kind of go on these soapboxes and and just like preach about uh, the fallacies of modern medicine and was really. Um, so this uh, is Paracelsus. This is like my kind of guy. <laughs> I, I'm actually loving Paracelsus right now. Yeah. So he was not only a firebrand and just a rabble rouser, he was yeah. also highly intelligent and was able to almost revive and bring to the forefront of that time alchemy. Yeah, definitely. He he in a lot of ways he did and is really well known for his works um around it. And he learned a lot of his um relations to natural and herbal medicines through the folk herbalists of that time. Like he would travel and he would learn through like the village witches and and the people who were just practicing for their community. Um which may have maintained a tradition over thousands of years. Absolutely. You know, you just and he was tapping into that. Exactly. So so he kind of married that traditional knowledge from the folk side with the traditional wisdom from the alchemical um, tradition going back through Spain and then into Arabia and then back into Egypt and really kind of wove it together. He was a, a, a big um, proponent of, of developing his own words, which is where that term spagyric comes from, kind of bringing it back full circle. Sure. So he's the guy that coined the term, as you said, he coined the term spagyrics. Right. So, um, so that term uh, comes from the Greek spao, S-P-A-O, um, means to separate, and agiro, which means to recombine. I've also heard more um, accurate re uh, translations of agiro being um, to like realiven or reawaken. So basically on the most foundational level, what a spagyric is, is you're taking the material apart into kind of its foundational pieces or principles from the alchemical model purifying them and then putting them back together um to produce a more evolved substance a more evolved medicine so there is a spagyric process i imagine and it's probably very lengthy and 
and complicated, but you're taking a compound and you're you're burning it, you're doing seven different things, right? And this is the spagyric stuff, or is this now this is a spagyric. Okay. So you're doing seven different stages of just mirroring the alchemical process. You're doing seven different stages of a form, some kind of distillation, or what would you call it? Yeah. So, I mean, you can start with um, the kind of like the best starting places with spagyric tinctures, which is what we produce with feral fungi. Um, But with the spagyric tinctures, basically you're doing an extract on the material and then you're taking the material after you've extracted it. Most people at this point will just um, throw it away at this point or compost it. Like a traditional herbalist. Like they exactly. made their tincture, their compost, the yep. herbs go in the compost. Right, because all the medicine and everything you're after is in that tincture. So we take that um, that material that has been extracted and we burn it down into a really fine ash. And then we leach the pure mineral salts from those ashes. Basically means that we soak those ashes in distilled water filter them, recrystallize them, and then put them back into the final tincture. So now on the most basic level, you're reconstituting the soul and the spirit or the sulfur and the mercury in the alchemical terms with the salt of the mushroom or the body of the mushroom or the herb or whatever you're working with. And so those mineral salts, those those crystalline mineral salts that we're putting back into the tincture I kind of describe them in two ways, right? Because like from the philosophical level, it's the body of the material that you're working with. So it's like the vehicle through which the other, the soul and the spirit kind of move. And then on a more practical, physiological, scientific level for the folks that are into that kind of thing, it's a complex of trace minerals. And there's a lot of research saying that, um, that those trace minerals are helping with cell absorption of some of the other compounds available from from the plants from the mushrooms etc so that's kind of like the most basic way so after this process you get you get you get it you said you get a mineral salt so after the seven stages mirroring the alchemy and the spagyric process you at the end of it all you get this crystalline salt is that correct well the crystalline salt is a part of the process right? okay so so when you're doing the full spagyric extract which i can de- de- define here and talk about in a second um, you're getting multiple different parts and pieces. So, so from the alchemical tradition and from the cosmology of alchemy, right? Everything evolves from one thing. It's kind of like the initial source. The you know the the um kind of like the, the center of spirit. It's like of the, all of like all the, the, yeah. the all yes exactly. Um, and the alchemists refer refer to that as like the prima materia. It's like the first matter. And then that material is divided into two. So then we have our first instance of duality, right? We've got the light and the dark, you know, masculine, feminine. We've got the um, um, the duality that we experience through many different philosophies and frames of thought throughout history. And then from those emanate the four elements. So we have the earth, the water, the air, and the fire. And, and then from those elements, then we get the three principles. So the train of thought and the, the philosophy from the alchemical perspective is that every thing that we can tangibly put our hands on and see in this material world is composed of those three principles. And in the alchemical tradition, they call those principles the salt, 
which are those mineral salts like I was talking about earlier. And I'm just going to put all these in like a context of plants because they're a little bit easier to understand with with other things that are chemically a little bit different. Um, But you have the salts, which are the mineral salts, the body of the material. You have the sulfur, which is the essence of the material in plants. It's like the essential oil. And then you have the mercury. So I think of like the the mercury is like the spirit. It's like the universal property. So I think of like the the essence, the sulfur, as being like the like you if you smell an essential oil. So go to the store, pick up a bottle of lavender essential oil, and you smell that lavender. It's like you know what plant that came from, right? Because that's like the individual nature of the plant that you're working with or that you're extracting. And then, and then the mercury, the spirit is more of like the universal level of, of that material. So any plant material that you ferment and then distill, so you go through the, the stages, the putrefaction, the distillation, you're going to get the, um, the pure mercury or spirit or alcohol off of the plant material. It's like ethanol, um, and that's also where we get the term spirits from as well, right? Uh, I've always wondered that. I was actually just thinking about that recently. Right. So it's like the spirit um, from the plant realm is is um, ethanol. Ah, uh, and that's what you would consider the sulfur. No, or that would mercury. be the mercury. Oh, the mercury. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then okay. the sulfur would be like the essential oil. Ah, okay. Got so, it. Got so it. in the tincture process, just to kind of like break it down a little bit more, sure. the way that it works is, is that you have your your mercury which a lot of people use like uh like a grain alcohol or like a cane alcohol and that's universal so you can extract the oil or the sulfur from pretty much any other plant or material with that um with that universal spirit right and so so we're extracting the sulfur with the with the spirit with the mercury and then that that mercury is kind of attuning to whatever material you're working with. So then you've got those two principles, right? Your sulfur and your mercury. And then you can take the material that you've extracted from with the spirit, burn it down in those pure mineral salts, crystallize those mineral salts and put them back. And now you've got a full spagyric tincture. So you have the sulfur, the mercury, and then the salt, the salt. Yeah. And the salt would represent what again? The body, the body, right? right. Wow. This is look, spagyrics this is almost this is mind-blowing because it feels to me like spagyrics is the most potent form of these natural medicines because you're really going all in like you're you're getting every type of magical medicinal property out of it and then also reconstituting it yeah and it's perfect form would you say that yeah and and totally and and so the as I mentioned earlier, it's like the tinctures is like a very simplified form of that. And a lot of people make tinctures, but even by just reincorporating the pure mineral salts um, through the people that I've seen do it and provide spagyrics and spagyric tinctures to people, you know, they're a lot more effective in certain cases than just regular tinctures. Because it has that extra energetic push. It's just like that that healing energy, the the spirit of the plant, the body of the plant, it's all there. For sure. Well, I would definitely say that. And I think you could also justify it from a purely like mechanical level with the mineral salts being a complex of trace minerals, helping with cell absorption of the other compounds. In the sure. Plant. Delivery. It is almost like a, the salt would be like a delivery method. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we think about like the body of the material. So it's like one way that I like to think about it is like if you have just a regular tincture, you've got a disembodied soul and spirit that are just kind of floating around. So it's harder for them to go where they need to go in the body. You're still getting 
you know, physiological compounds. So you're still going to get a benefit from those. But when you add that salt back in, it's like the vehicle to kind of take it into the body where it needs to go. So you think of like, we have a physical body. So when you put that body back into that tincture, then, then it knows kind of has a, I would say from a philosophical level and a metaphysical level is like, there's an intelligence that you're kind of reawakening in that material by giving it that vehicle to the body, the body, just like our own body. Like, you you know, you're, you're, you're trying to work on something. You want to build a house. Well, you can think about your ethereal thought. You can be this spirit, but it's a lot in the third dimension. It's really hard to build a house without a physical body. (laughs) Exactly. Right. You're going to try, but then, so in that same sense, like having the, the salts there, the body to act as a vehicle, for that energy, the spirit to get of the plant to get to you. Is that what the crux of it is? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then, and when you're making tinctures, you know, you get, you can kind of play with the ratios, but when you're doing a full spagyric extract, so just to give you like a super, super basic rundown on what that looks like, you're distilling the essential oil from the plant material or attaining the oil, which will be the sulfur. Then you're taking that plant material, fermenting it, and then distilling it to yield the ethanol and then you're taking everything that's left over everything that's not in that essential oil or that ethanol and you're burning it into a really fine ash leaching those mineral salts getting the pure salt and then you're putting those things back together so the ratios can be a little bit different when you're working with like a tincture because you it's based on how much alcohol you're putting in the material right but when you're doing a full spagyric extract you're getting all three parts in the the natural quantity that they are in the material so that's on a more philosophical level so when you think about that practically is like when you work with something like lavender right you're going to get a lot of essential oils and you're going to get like a probably a pretty good amount of alcohol but you may not get as much like mineral salts and then when you're working with something like lemon balm even though it's like really fragrant it doesn't have a lot of essential oils so you're not going to get very much essential oil but you might get a lot of alcohol and then uh, so everything is kind of coming in the constituent parts and then you get can learn more about the material that you're working with and kind of like how it um, how it comes together elementally too. So you have a company, Feral Fungi, and you sell spagyric products. Yeah, so we focus on spagyric tinctures. So as I kind of broke down, the, the full spagyric extracts is a, is a bit more of a complicated process and and it's outlined really well with plants and with certain minerals and with animal materials and with metals but when you really get into the mushrooms um which is a really kind of the area that i've been most drawn to there's so not, you do spagyric mushrooms like spagyric, spagyric mushrooms, mushrooms okay so you're yeah. doing that what you just described beautifully i might add um what you just described the spagyric process you're doing that to mushrooms because you could do that to herbs you could do that yeah. to anything. Yeah. But right now you're doing that with feral fungi. You're doing this with mushrooms. Right. And and what interested me most about that was that there wasn't really a historical context. Um, I mean, alchemy in general, the historical context is pretty, as I mentioned before, kind of obfuscated by, by the sands of time, so to speak. Um, but uh, mushrooms at best just kind of got tapped on to the end of the herbal world which as we know now mushrooms are phylogenically or on the tree of life much more closely related to animals so it kind of opened this whole thought and process in my mind it was like well 
if you're wanting to work with the mushrooms alchemically, you can't really apply the same processes that you would with plants. And through my experiments, I've really found that to be true. So on a commercial level, we're producing spagyric tinctures. Um, so we're basically doing a dual extraction on the mushrooms with organic cane alcohol and then water, and then getting all the goodness out of the mushrooms, putting those pieces back together, extracting the mineral salts and putting that back into the final tincture. So in that regard, our, our extracts are, you're not going to find anything like them available on the market. Um, mushroom. Wow. So that's actually a huge statement. I mean, you're creating something that's exclusive in the world. There's no one else doing what you're doing. I mean, there's probably other people doing it now. You know, I've thought about it for quite a while and there's other people who've kind of had that thought to explore that path on their own as well, I'm sure. Um, but but when I started delving into it and exploring it, I, I coined a term um, alchemycology. Um, That's a wonderful so the, term. The intersection of alchemy and What are you, mycology. Paracelsus? <laughs> just making up words here. Just making up words. Um <laughs> But that's that's what I wrote um, in Peter McCoy's book, Radical Mycology. I wrote my article entitled Alchem Mycology. And I kind of work on more the philosophical, um, esoteric, and like the writing side of that from uh, under that title, Alchem Mycology. So I have a website called Alchem Mycology 2 um, that's hopefully going to be updated here shortly, but um, where I put more of like the writing out um, going into like the doctrine of signatures and all these kinds of things that we work with. But so I've personally experimented a lot with, um, with different ways to process the mushrooms. And so I've personally done full spagyric extracts on mushrooms, but just commercially it's not really viable as well as a lot of it at this point to my mind is pretty experimental. And so some of the compounds that I may be retrieving through my processes, I'm not hundred percent sure until we can get them tested and things like that. If they're, um, if they're even ready for the market. Yeah. Or if they're a hundred percent safe, right. It's like, oh, wow. or what, what the, you know, what the implications might be because you know, not everything that you process, uh, even if it's according to the spagyric method might be suitable for human consumption. I mean, intuitively, I'd say that they probably are, but I feel like there needs to be more research before I would feel comfortable releasing a full um, spagyric extract of a mushroom. So tell me or describe what are the feelings or sensations or just what happens to you when you take spagyric mushroom extract? Obviously, it's not a psychedelic drug. This is more just about health, rejuvenation, and obviously even more. So, so what is that like? Right. So, uh, you know, medicinal mushrooms have their own longstanding tradition, thousands of years of use in, in places like Asia, even though there's kind of a fungal phobia in the West or like a fear of mushrooms. Um, do you think that has something to do with the psychedelic mushroom movement? Like uh, they just assume that if it's not like a criminy mushroom or a portobello, it's going to get you high. Is that kind of the deal? Well, it, it either going to get you high or it's going to kill you, right? So, <laughs> so, so I think there's a fear. Uh, I think the fear is probably more around the the potential of death than psychoactive effects. Go. And maybe there's like some some esoteric control aspect around the psychoactive medicines like there are around other psychoactive medicines. But It's possible. But, um, but yeah, I think the fungal phobia is more related to the role that mushrooms play in the environment, right? Because mushrooms are, I, I call them like nature's little alchemists because they are like the transmuting force in the natural world. So they're like breaking down um, dead and decaying material into its kind of compound 
parts it's like components so that they can be distributed to or exchanged for um, sugars with plants and things like that so right because people just to touch on that a little bit the mycelial networks of various mushrooms they do store nutrients it's been found in studies they right. store nutrients and they can distribute those nutrients to right. other plants within their you know mycelial network right tree roots or whatever they can yep. send nutrients to those trees is that yep. correct yeah exactly <sighs> that's mind-blowing to me so so yeah so mushrooms are kind of like their their whole own esoteric world by themselves but they have a lot of medicinal applications right and they've been used traditionally in chinese medicine specifically for as far as you know we can tell like three to four thousand years probably even longer kind of the same um same thing with with alchemy but you know there's instances where we've found um there's there's a really really famous one of otzi the Iceman, who is found in the swiss alps um and they they dated his body or his, his remains back to, I think it was like eight or th- nine thousand years ago. And um, this this man who was traversing the Swiss Alps um, was found with these um, tattoos all over his body and a pouch. And in that pouch, among other herbs, um, he had a tinder conch mushroom, um, which is the Fomis fomentarius, and then he had a birch polypore mushroom and. Um, those mushrooms have shown to have various medicinal benefits. Um, the tender conch mushroom also gets its name from being able to carry a live tender. So he could have been using it for that. But then the birch polypore also was, um, is extensively used for its antibacterial antiviral properties. And then they found that those tattoos all over his body Turns out that they weren't just random points and tattoos, but they actually lined up with uh, meridian systems and eastern systems of medicine. That is absolutely fascinating. So he had these tattoos, this 8,000-year-old Iceman they find in the Swiss Alps. He has these tattoos that correspond with the meridians of eastern medicine and then on top of that he's got essentially i guess a bottle of advil with him or, or maybe some uh you know the equivalent of <laughs> right. like some maybe antibiotics. like per- percocet or something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just in case you know you gotta yeah. be, and, and it's just mind-blowing so it's been a part it's probably been obviously it's been with us since day one human development you know do we have i know we have cannabinoid receptors i know we have opiate receptors in the brain do we have natural parts of our body that are work kind of in synthesis with mushrooms oh absolutely well i mean again there's kind of multiple um frameworks in which you can look at that and one of them is that you know the mushrooms are developed they're they were one of the first um uh multicellular organisms to develop on on the terrestrial earth right and so they faced a lot of the same biological threats that we do so a lot of the same viruses and bacteria and so naturally they developed um, extracellular compounds or like what we refer to as like metabolites that um, they use to kind of defend themselves against these biological threats right and so and isn't it true that there's no other type of life like mushrooms on earth and there's a theory that the mushroom spores may have come from asteroids in deep space and then the spores may have been implanted on this earth have you heard that I, I've definitely heard that. Yeah, I have not done enough research myself into that to know one way or another, but it's definitely intriguing. I know for sure that the spores can can survive the vacuum of space. So so it's, defi- it's definitely... Wow! <laughs> I mean, it's definitely fascinating. And, it's you know, mind-blowing. They, they, they really are kind of the foundation for why we're even able to live on this earth too, right? Because it's like before 
before plants lived terrestrially on on the earth right they were living in this like nutrient rich broth of the sea and then and then it was really kind of a, a relationship between the mushrooms and the algae that gave us the lichens and those lichens started to break down the the rocks and the the um so make it into kind of bioavailable soil so that those plants could slowly move out of that like nutrient dense broth so it's very important mushrooms were a huge part in not just human development but just actually the development of all life on earth uh uh, terrestrial life i would yeah i would make that argument for sure yeah and then here we are in oregon i know we're just kind of we're we're talking about a lot of different things but we love talking about mushrooms in oregon i've heard is the largest mycelial network in the world Yes. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, out in eastern Oregon. Eastern Oregon. Yeah, it's the Armillaria malaya, I think is the, the Latin name. It's the honey mushroom. And it has more mycelial kind of, I guess, fibers, more mycelial fibers than the neural network of the human brain. Is that a rumor or is that true? Um, I, I mean, I could not say objectively whether or not it does, but I, I would assume so. I mean, I've heard that before from people that are far more informed than me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could see that being true for sure. But what we do know it is, is that to this date, it's the largest living organism that we've found. And most so of wait, it, largest living organism on earth, right? That largest living organism on earth that is freaking fascinating and it's a mycelial network in oregon not far from here and it could be emulating some sort of brain some sort of neural network i mean yeah i think it depends on on which communities you're talking to i feel like a materialistic scientific uh community might be hesitant to say that um something like a mycelial network could have intelligence, but I would venture to say that it's definitely possible. And I feel like it would also be uh, short sighted of us to think that nature doesn't have its own forms of intelligence, even if we don't recognize them as the same as ours. But yeah, so it's, it's pretty wild in your own personal opinion. Now, do you feel like this is just you, Jason Scott <laughs> midnight on earth? Um, do you feel like mushrooms Obviously, they have some sort of purpose and some sort of mission, but it, it, do you think they may have come here from from space? It's all speculation. Come here from outer space or some outer Earth scenario to help humanity evolve. Like somebody was like, "Look, these guys need a little boost." Like it's like putting like a you know like protein in your shake or something. Like boost it up. Like we're going to help these guys develop. We're going to send some of these spores and then they're going to find the spores. It's going to help their consciousness develop. What do you think about that theory? Uh, well, I'm not so ethnocentric that I think that they would do that just for us. I think that, you know, maybe the mushrooms have their own prerogative and their own kind of pathway. But I would venture to say that through the way that the mushrooms interact with their natural environment and through the way that they've developed um, evolutionarily and through the way that they um, behave within ecosystems and through the way that they provide medicine, that they definitely have a lot of different ways that they could provide insight for how we can move forward in a more intelligent way, right? Because they, um, the mushrooms basically have re-inherited the earth after every kind of major extinction period because of the the adaptive nature that they have and then generally most mushrooms aren't outgrowing 
the the resources available within their, within their environment, right? So even in the case of like the armillary mushroom in Eastern Oregon, you know, some people consider that to be a parasitic mushroom, but there's also another perspective of looking at that where it brings succession of kind of like the next levels and the next phases. So it's it's maybe killing some trees, but whether or not that is objectively a bad thing, I think is is hard for us to tell as human beings because I think there's an innate intelligence in nature where, you know, maybe they are kind of selectively helping to thin the forest so that other more diverse forms of life and ecology can develop and and grow kind of in in the um, spaces in between. So somehow they're they're able to distinguish these different, through their mushroom intelligence, they're able to distinguish these different types of trees and understand which ones are going to be healthy potentially. I mean, this is all speculation, but you know, it has some role in developing it. And you think that that's way more beneficial than the people that, that would say it, they're parasitic because it sounds like they're killing some trees. The big mushroom brain in Oregon is killing some trees. Right. And, and so some people feel like it's parasitic because of that. Well, I mean, they classify it as a parasite, um, but, <laughs> but I think, you know, again, I think nature has a lot more intelligence than we often give it credit for. And even in the case of like, um, you know, plants that we consider to be parasitic are not always um, usually not completely detrimental to the environment that they're living in. And they're usually kind of filling some sort of niche um, a lot of times left by kind of some destruction or chaos that we've caused somewhere along the way. So, so tell me what are some of the health benefits or what, what are the, some of the benefits that people are, they're, they're going to your website. I believe what's your website, feralfungi.com, feralfungi.com. Yep. Feral fung, fungi. Sorry. There's, there's infinite ways to say it. Fungi is a proper <laughs> way to say it. You could say fungi, you could say fungi. Feral F E R A L fungi F like F U N fun. No, I'm all about fun. F U N G I feralfungi.com. So somebody goes to your website, they get like literally this unbelievable product that's so rare. What are some of the benefits they're going to experience? How is it going to help them? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways that mushrooms help. As I mentioned before, they kind of developed in, in response to a lot of the same biological um, threats that we do in terms of um, uh, microorganisms and things like that. But one of the primary ways is that all mushrooms are going to help with. And and so if you ever look at a list of the benefits that mushrooms have, you're going to find a really long list. And one of the reasons for this is that all of the mushrooms have uh, complexes of polysaccharides, which just means long chain sugars that are bound in the cell wall of the mushroom. And these long chain sugars um, known as beta glucan polysaccharides have their own host of benefits that they offer to the the individual who's taking them so there's been a lot of research talking about the benefits of polysaccharides and and um helping to support the innate immune system helping to support the body's inflammation response helping to regulate healthy blood sugar levels um acting as a prebiotic so you know most people are familiar with probiotics right so you want to give your body those natural um healthy microbiota but or the the microorganisms um, for healthy digestion, but prebiotics is even a step before that. It's giving your body the the correct sugars 
to, to be able to feed those microorganisms that we need for our processes and, and helps to nourish the gut flora that way. Um, so that's, that's, among that's pretty other, huge. Um, yeah. And among other things, the, that's kind of the, the way that mushrooms in general, all mushrooms are going to help with those things. And the, the polysaccharides would be considered primary metabolites because they're contained within the cell wall of the mushroom. So it's really important too. It's like, you can't just go to the store, buy a mushroom, grind it up and eat it or, or take it. You're not really going to get anything out of it. So that's why you have to have an extract or like a mushroom extracted product is because you have to break down that cell wall before your body can access those polysaccharides. So you have this product, this, the spagyric mushroom. Tell me about some of the other products that you have. Yeah, well, we can go we can go into the, you know the, the mushrooms a little bit more because that's that's sure. kind of like that's kind of like a, a broad overview of the mushrooms. And then each of the individual mushrooms have compounds that they refer to as secondary metabolites. Again, um, compounds that the mushroom has developed over time, and those secondary metabolites help us um, in various different ways too. So, like one of the main um, kind of mushrooms that that really has grabbed my attention and that I've been working with a lot is the lion's mane mushroom that's been touted for its um, neurological benefits. And we've seen uh, things happen with people's nervous systems and with, with neural health that before working with the lion's mane, I didn't even really think was possible. You know, it's like a lot of people kind of come to this point where it's like they have some sort of neuropathy, whether it's like nerve pain or lack of neural sensation. Um, and and just kind of live with it um but the lion's mane we've found has been so effective with so many different types of neuropathy and everything from helping to think clearer and and to to be more focused and have a stronger memory um to getting those kind of like clear uh so it's really just improving cognitive abilities, Cogn- just, just really cognition and memory and yep. language, speech, yep. all of that stuff. Yep. That's cognitive abilities, but also um, uh, like nerve pain. So we've had some folks who have like lack of neural sensation um, in their peripheries and like the wrist or, or like their legs and through taking the lion's mane have been able to restore that neural sensation. Um, people who have experienced lots of nerve pain who've been able to kind of help at least tamper, if not stop that nerve pain through the, the lion's mane mushroom. Wow. That's huge. And this is, this is just, is this new, like lion's mane, is this kind of a new trend in, in mycology right now? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like people have known about it for quite a while. Right. But, um, there's definitely a trend about it going around, especially with the, uh, draw towards like nootropics and things that are going to kind of like uh, what I've heard people refer to as like biohacking where you, how do you, how do you kind of like, how do you kind of like uh, tune your body to be the most um, premier functioning, right? Efficient, just yeah. everything's working like clockwork. Exactly. I feel like I already figured that out and uh, I feel like it's iodine. I feel like the secret is high doses of iodine and we could talk about that at a different time, <laughs> but that's what I feel like these days. Definitely. Well, I mean, most people are definitely iodine rich we, or iodine deficient. Rather, we we don't really have great ways to access iodine in our diet. So, yeah, we'll talk about it after helps. the show. I'm going to get this guy on iodine. It's going to change <laughs> his life. But awesome. I want to talk about your perspective as someone that's deeply 
uh, engrossed in just mycology and the spirit of the mushroom, the understanding. I've learned an incredible amount from you today. And I just want to know what your opinion is of psychedelic mushrooms. And then also your opinion on the current trend of microdosing. Yeah. So, um, that is another big topic. (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like as someone that's really, you're really in sync. You're, you're in a symbiotic relationship with all these different kinds of mushrooms, you know, reishi and all these different one lion's mane that we just talked about. But psychedelic mushrooms, you know, you have your, and, and we could talk about the, the kinds, you have your cyan essence, your uh, cubensis, right? And then there's mm. the amanitas are like super kind Which of dangerous. Whole, whole different set of compounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you feel like they're being used correctly in modern society or uh, are they being abused? Often not. I feel like they're more times than not being abused just the way we see with a lot of those sacred plant medicines. Um, mm, I would say, I feel the same way. I would say the same um, beyond the mushrooms, the same occurs with ayahuasca and with, with peyote. And I feel like and DMT I'm noticing and, as well. Well, yeah. And DMT as, as a peripheral to ayahuasca for sure. Um, yeah, you know, I think again, that's a, it's a pretty big question. I feel like, you know, those plants, those medicines, um, whether we're talking about the psilocybin mushrooms, whether we're talking about ayahuasca, whether we're talking about um, peyote, all of those things carry this um, deep intelligence, right? So I would consider those things to be um, what you might refer to as like master plants, right? Because those those medicines, the way that they work, it's not... Um, it's not like other plant medicines that we have access to, you know, it's like a lot of plant medicines, even the ones that, that interact with, with our consciousness in certain ways, you know, it's like those ones have this, have this potential of healing many different things um, from a physiological level, but then also on, again, kind of delving into both sides, that psycho spiritual level as well. And I think, you know, I try not to make any judgments on whether or not they're being used correctly or not, because I don't know if I'm the person to decide what's correct and what's sure. not correct with it. But <laughs> of course, um, but, but I do think, you know, there, it, it, it is really interesting because we're alongside the, the consciousness rising around mushrooms in general, we're definitely seeing a rise in consciousness around, um, psilocybin especially for its uh, medicinal and therapeutic uses well yeah because right now there's even a movement in colorado and in oregon here i I definitely signed the petition and in california as well to legalize medicinal psychedelic mushrooms and have almost like a dispensary like we have with cannabis where you have a dispensary type scenario where you can go buy a mushroom chocolate or an eighth of mushrooms and and have a i guess safe trip under certain circumstances um right how do you feel about that? Do you feel like that's the right move for psychedelic mushrooms to be an almost like almost like a dispensary type platform? Uh, I, well, I mean, I feel like it's better than than being criminalized. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, of course. <laughs> so, so I, I would say the, the foundationally decriminalizing nature would be the first step. But I, I feel like with a lot of those sacred plants that that I was mentioning earlier too, it's like they're kind of moving towards a trend of um, strictly therapeutic use which i think set and setting and a proper guidance through a psychedelic experience like that is absolutely crucial especially if you want to get into like the deep healing potential that they have to offer however do i think a clinical setting is necessarily the best way to do that 
not necessarily right so right. i think i think you know it's a step forward because it's bringing um it's bringing awareness to those those plants and those mushrooms and those compounds um and and the benefits that they have however i feel like with a lot of natural medicine it's like a really myopic perspective right because people talk about psilocybin mushrooms and then they just say oh well it's psilocybin and psilocybin is doing all these things and now there's scientists who are trying to synthesize psilocybin out of e coli you know growing e coli that produce psilocybin and it's like to me that kind of gets away from from the potential of it because i think again there's like an the spirit the sacred exactly so there's an inherent intelligence and spirit to those mushrooms and to those plants that when you take them out of their traditional context when you take them out of their natural environment you kind of lose something there and so i i kind of wonder you know this might be speculation too of like how far down that rabbit hole do we go before instead of becoming more found as I feel like those, those things could kind of offer us pathways to how far away do we move from them where we're kind of getting more lost um, through their use. And when you're, when you're disconnected, them wrong. Right? yeah, exactly. You disconnected from their true purpose. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's a pretty big and complex subject and obviously, you know, I, I try to remain, non-judgmental about the different ways and i think that there's definitely benefits through the way that the legislature is moving forward and the way that the research is is becoming available and 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 showing the the potency and the efficacy of use of psilocybin mushrooms i mean it's it's amazing especially you know as as myself who's somebody who's struggled with depression in the past and kind of chosen an alternative route to dealing with it to see that people can take a large dose of psilocybin mushrooms and have a long-term um, cure to their depressive states. Right. And, and even just um, being able, instead of having to regularly take some sort of antipsychotic medicine, be able to take this natural uh, mushroom that has, has little to no side effect and, and to really be able to um, perceive the world in a way that, you know, is, is much more healthy, more uh, authentic, more authentic. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in regards, you know, to the conversation and why I mentioned as well, that it's like a lot bigger topic than, um, than I really know how to kind of take a strong stance in too, is because I've also heard a lot of stories of like people who have taken psilocybin mushrooms with the intention to like get down and party, but then had these like crazy, um, revelations about their lives and about the things that they were doing and about the crazy you know way that they were treating themselves and their bodies and kind of did a 180 because of that right so it's like sometimes i feel like there has been expression of those those instances where even if the mushroom was taken maybe not in a context that would be coming from a healthy state of mind that there's enough intelligence in that that fungal being to kind of help um guide them where they need to go right yeah so so that's so i think that's where it gets really tricky right because then there's like that side of it where you know there's benefit maybe even if it's not taken in the best setting but then there's it's becoming a little overblown and a little um and there's benefit to it sneaking up 
behind you. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, though, what I'm seeing is I'm noticing that the people are microdosing and they're taking these small amounts of mushrooms. And when I have taken psychedelic mushrooms in the past, and even for me, and I, and I believe we talked about it, this in private in the past, when I have reishi mushrooms, when I have lion's mane, when I have any type of mushroom that's not just like your standard portobello criminy, I have some sort of psychedelic mushroom effect. And for me, you know, to take a little bit of psychedelic mushrooms, whether it's just like a little gram of psilocybin or like, you know, a gram of essence, which is actually more potent than psilocybin. I have a really powerful, powerful trip. So what I have trouble understanding with people is like, they're taking these little bit of mushrooms every day for depression, which is so amazing and other uh, mental health issues. But are they then potentially losing the sacredness of the mushroom and then also detaching from a functional reality? Uh, again, I think that's a really big question and, and I don't think that there's necessarily a straightforward answer to it. I think from my own perspective, you know, um, psilocybin mushrooms seem to be having a lot of kind of mechanically verified health benefits, um, through the different compounds that they contain. So really nourishing for the nervous system as well, helping to rebuild neural connections, part of maybe why they're helpful in things like depression. And I think it just depends on the context and the the way that they're being used because I feel like, you know, maybe that microdosing could be helpful for people, right? Because um, you can kind of get some of the more physiological benefits of the mushroom, as at least as far as I've understood microdosing. I've never personally done it, but... Um, but it's like you get the kind of therapeutic benefits from the mushroom without going full on out of your mind. But actually having a, a psychedelic trip. Like right, exactly. But then and, for me, it seems like if you're even if you take the littlest bit, there's still that that essence of the experience there. You you are having a psychedelic trip whether you realize it or not. I mean, but aren't we always kind of having a psychedelic trip? I think trip so, too. Reason? I mean, we, we have so many hormones in our brain, and then we're just taking these substances, I've noticed, to kind of boost our release of these hormones. But we, if we do it naturally, it's a whole different experience. So, yes. Right. Well, well I mean, it's pretty... It's pretty I mean, when you get to it on that level, again, it's kind of hard to differentiate because uh, the psilocybin is a tryptamine molecule, right? And the tryptamine are are the base molecules for like our serotonin and our dopamine. So basically all of our perceptive, um, all the compounds that you can draw towards our perceptive states and like the, the synapses, the, the neurons firing through the synapses are all tryptamine based molecules. So, I mean, you could even make the argument. I feel like that tryptamine, um, molecules, whether naturally derived or otherwise just kind of show you more, uh, more of a realistic picture of what's going on. So, so I mean, I think it kind of depends on the context in what you're asking the question because it's like, will it make somebody more high functioning in a sick society? Probably not. You know, will it turn them on or turn them towards more of a healthy connection with nature? Maybe, but you know, I don't think that I don't think that there's like a one size fits all because I feel like th I feel like the way and the context in which I've heard of microdosing being used too, a lot of times is like for me kind of concerning because it's like more driving towards like the um, towards ends of production and, and just making it a product essentially making it a product and making and and 
making more consumable products, right? So it's like, how can I take these mushrooms so that I can be more creative and create this next software that I can develop for this company and, you know, have this new startup, right? So it's like, there's a lot of people I feel like in the Bay Area that are kind of trending the whole, whole psilocybin and LSD use for microdosing. But their intentions might not be in the right place. Because they're like, oh, I want to make this the best video game for my development company. And they're like taking mushrooms to figure out how to make this video game that may or may not be benefiting society in any way, shape or form. Right. And I mean, I may have my own judgments on that. And who knows whether or not, you know, whether or not there is a a direct answer (laughs) of whether or not like that's, you know, the mushrooms have their own prerogative or not. But um, I feel like that would be kind of for me, it seems kind of in in attrition to what um, direction that mushrooms might naturally take people in, in the proper context and the proper set and setting. So as humanity develops towards the future, as we're growing now in this modern time, it's so wild, but here we are. What do you think the role, let's just start with alchemy. What do you think the role of alchemy is in the future of human development? Do you think it's going to catch on? Do you think we'll all eventually become alchemists in our own way? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to because the chocolatier down the street might consider themselves an alchemist, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that, you know, one of the reasons that I've been drawn to both alchemy and mycology is because I think that they offer us um, frameworks for how to perceive and how to live within a social context um, that is more closely resonate resonating with the natural world. Right. So it's like, I feel like they offer us um, pathways forward. um, So to speak, I think I'm having trouble kind of figuring out how to put this into words because I think what a lot of it is, 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 stories and context and cosmology right because like our our i feel part of the reason that we're so lost as a culture you know and you know i feel like that could be debated less and less every day (laughs) we lost touch with that ancient history well not only lost touch with ancient history but lost touch with tradition lost touch with cosmology is like we don't have a story that puts us in a specific place within our environment it's like we're kind of from the cultural narratives, like we're kind of on top and everything else below us and everything else is like made for us to use. And we and just then, kind of popped out of the ether and, you know, with, somehow and nobody really does. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. However, I mean, however it happened, it's, it's just like, what are the stories that we tell ourselves where a lot of like traditional cultures is like, they're a part of the whole, not standing on top of it in like a pyramid form where all these things are there for their disposal or for our disposal so it's like, how do we, um, how do we change the cultural narrative? I think is the, is the biggest thing. And I feel like that's where to me, the alchemical perspective and the mycological perspective, um, and you know, the psychedelic perspective have the most, most, um, potential, right? Because if you take those things and kind of like we were just talking about with the, the microdosing psilocybin, if you take those things and you use them within the context of the cultural narrative that we're talking about, and you're just kind of driving your egoic force forward and you're just trying to make those bucks and you're trying to kind of capitalize the best that you can on your environment so that, you know, you can put more into your pocket. You're kind of, from my perspective, like missing the point. You've lost, you've lost it. 
I feel like it, you know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, I feel like, I feel like there's, um, I feel like there's, um, a lot that we can learn from, from, you know, traditional cultures and models where we're inherently a part of everything else. Right. And so it benefits us to live in harmony with the natural world and with, um, our ecosystems that we are a part of and with a societal structure than having divisiveness and kind of like this dog eat dog mentality um, that is ultimately from what I can tell put us into a lot of the, the, the problems that we see in, in our societal structure. So you see alchemy and then just how mushrooms work in their own self being uh, like a community and like a, like a network we can look at that and, and mirror that and shadow that in, in our world and, and make our world a place where all of us, all of the humans are together in one beautiful, harmonious, non-conflict, conflict-free, I should say, situation. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if the, I don't know if a utopia like that would ever exist, but it's coming. I'm, I'm still, I feel like there's still probably going to be conflict, but well, the, way, the ways that we address that conflict and the ways that we approach it can can be more harmonious. Right. See, that's the thing. It's about react or responding and not reacting. If we can get to a point where we resp- every human responds to each other versus reacts, then right. when conflict does arise, we can diffuse it in a way that's harmonious. Right. Well, and then you know, and take a note from the the mushrooms is like when when you've got an abundance of you know silica piled up then you can share it with that person over there who needs some silica you know in the <laughs> context of the mineral. Yeah, yeah yeah so you know it's like how do we and then how do we work on ourselves too so so speaking from like a personal level the alchemical framework has really been a guiding force for me because it's it's how how do i live within and relate to the natural world in a way that um in the, in a way that really feels good and, and resonates with myself. So on a less meta level than kind of where I took it with that first answer, it's how, how do we apply these things to our lives so that we can individually be the best human beings that we can be right. Um, within our smaller circles and then, and then theoretically, ideally maybe that that kind of ripples out from there. So, we do let's say we got we got some time we got 12 minutes so i just want to talk about uh you know what are some of the things you want to leave people with that are going to strengthen their understanding of mushrooms get them away from now I don't, did you make that word up what was that fungal phobia or what was that word <laughs> i didn't make it uh, yeah is, that, a paras- phobia? is yeah. that was that paracelsus not, not <laughs> paracelsus nope <laughs> <laughs> yeah just the, the fear of mushrooms how do we what, what what can you tell people to 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 help them understand more that mushrooms are just like a vitamin almost like just something that's from nature that 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 will benefit them what will get them over their fungal phobia well i mean i think i think the biggest thing is that most mushrooms aren't going to kill you right it's even the poisonous ones um there's only a handful that if you eat them they'll kill you and most of the time your, people aren't eating those mushrooms if they don't have and and won't be even close to eating those mushrooms if they don't have um, a relationship with the mushroom realm. So my first advice would be to just don't go out and eat mushrooms um, if you don't know what you're getting yourself into. If you go out with somebody who's experienced, more than likely that person isn't going to feed you something that's going to kill you. At the very worst, it might give you like a little bit of an upset stomach, um, which is not the end of the world. However, all these mushrooms that we're working with medicinally, 
you know, none of those are anywhere close morphologically or um, chemically to anything that's going to kill you or cause you discomfort unless you have a very, very rare mushroom allergy, which is like a very, very small percentage of people. Buddha. What's that? Buddha. Yeah, Buddha. (laughs) Isn't that what happened to him? I don't know. That's what I heard. He I, that's the story from what I understand that he, he died from eating a mushroom. Well, he did not want to refuse. Someone offered him a mushroom that he was allergic to this dish that had a mushroom in it that he knew he was allergic to, but he didn't want to participate in the energy of refusing this person's hospitality. Right. So he ate the mushroom and died. Crazy. I'd never heard that that's before. The Buddha story. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh. so very rarely yeah, yeah, yeah. you might be, you might be Buddha, but very rarely, you know, but you yeah, know, but if you're getting, if you're getting mushrooms from a reputable sport, now you're scaring people. Again. <laughs> no, no, no. We're back. We're back. We're back. If you're this getting was ancient times. If you're getting have. mushrooms from a reputable source, you know, you don't really have to worry about that. And, and all the medicinal <laughs> mushrooms, especially like the conch mushrooms, right? You don't have to worry about them um, being deadly because there's not really deadly conch mushrooms, especially ones that are being used in um, natural medicine. So, right. So that I was think, just like thousands of years ago. This guy was like picking stuff out of a field. <laughs> there was no health regulations. They didn't have OSHA. I mean, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, <laughs> it's a great, um, you know, it's, it's a great story though too, right? Because don't, don't just take random mushrooms from some dude who well, hands you mushrooms. Am I smarter than Buddha? Am I smarter than Buddha? Because let me tell you, I would have said no, no <laughs> offense. I, I think the guy would have got over it. You know, like he might've went a little too far on that one. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, you, there's not really much to worry about when it comes to taking mushrooms. And so I think, I think generally we have moved past that fungal phobia in large. I think there's still probably a handful of people who hold on to it. Sure. But sure. I think by and large as a society, we've kind of moved past that. And also we're kind of seeing not only a renaissance in the alchemical traditions, but we're seeing an even bigger renaissance in the mycological um, sciences, right? So a lot more people... I feel like when I started making these medicines and started giving them to people and kind of like describing what they're for and, and all these kinds of things, you know, it's like a lot of people were like totally new to it. Hadn't even heard about it. You know, it was kind of introducing them to a whole new wormhole to where these days it feels like every other person that comes and talks to me has not only like a foundation of like, Oh, well I know, I've heard mushrooms are good for you, but also like, I know that you should be taking the fruiting body over the mycelium grown on grain, which is, is kind of like a debate within the medicinal mushroom world. Um, but which we, one is more medicinal essentially, uh, the fruiting bodies for sure. Okay. Yeah. And so, so there's a couple of things that set our products specifically apart. One being that they're all fruit body extracts, you know, there's benefits to the mycelium for sure. However, I haven't seen one piece of research that validates mycelium grown on grain as being as effective as pure mycelium or as the fruiting body. So, um, you know, if somebody has that research, I'd be more than stoked to see it and more than stoked to look at it. But I just haven't seen it to this point. So so we work with the fruiting body and also from a kind of like an energetic uh, perspective of herbalism. Right. It's like the fruiting body has all of the extracellular metabolites in the forms of like the terpenes and and the things that give it the flavor. And so if you taste a handful of different mycelium products, they all taste pretty similar, especially if they're grown on grain, they're like a little bit sweet. If you take uh, an extract from a fruiting body of the mushroom, you're going to taste the different mushroom in each of those. So each of them are going to taste pretty radically different from each other. Um, And 
from an energetic system of medicine and working with natural medicine is like that flavor, like that bitterness that you get from a reishi fruiting body that you're not going to get from the mycelium is going to kind of like trigger the intelligence of your body and it's going to kind of offer activate um, your body's own innate intelligence. So along with the compounds from the mushroom working, you've also got your body kind of like tuning on, turning on and tuning in to um, help itself as well. Right. It's not dropping out though. It's, it's dropping in to help yeah, you. Dro- drop, <laughs> dropping in. Yeah. Yeah. We've moved beyond dropping out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is that like, wow. So all your products, not only are they the highest quality spagyric extraction method, you're also using the fruiting bodies. And all of our fruiting bodies are coming from uh, North America, primarily the Pacific Northwest. So that's the other thing is when you find uh, mushroom products that are coming um, in the form of the fruiting body or the fruiting body extract, is they're coming from China most often. And I think that there's, you know, there's a couple sides to that. And I think one argument that I've heard people make, which I'm not sure is like, is, uh, you know, necessarily something to worry about is like, but the quality of, um, regulation around like organic standards and, um, production quality and then irradiation as getting those imported into the United States. But then for me, the bigger question is, um, is a question of ethics, right? Because I know in China that they don't have the same stringent labor laws that they do uh, as they do in the United States. Well, the communist do- doctrine does not teach morals and ethics. It says the word ethics. They don't even teach that. Right. So so often I ask, and, and I'm not sure, maybe, you know, maybe there's really well to do, you know, I, I'm just curious because I, the, the price for Chinese mushrooms is a lot cheaper than you can get just like any other product for sure and whether that's a volume thing and that they've just dialed in i mean they have been cultivating mushrooms for a lot longer than people have in in north america but i also feel like that price is being paid somewhere else whether that's like industrial waste or standards or whether that's somebody's wages and whether somebody's being paid a living wage and i think when when it comes to medicine i think um you know to this point, things have just been kind of trending and people just kind of take whatever's trendy. But I think moving forward, one thing that we should consider too when we're talking about and thinking about natural medicine and medicine in general is like, where is it coming from and what's the what's the price? And, and if I'm trying to heal myself, do I want to kind of settle with the cheapest option or do I want to kind of step up and, and you know, n- feel good not knowing not only that I'm taking the best thing for my body, which is you know, definitely can be difficult to find the best quality extract, but also am I taking something that is benefiting the larger community too, right? Is and is not detrimental to somebody. The like, human community. Right. So it's like am I am I putting money in the pocket of somebody down the street so that they can feed their family and that they have more money to um, feed themselves and and put back into the local economy? Or am I sending all that money over to China? Um which is an oppressive regime, which has its own, yeah, which has its own uh, implications. Full of beautiful people, but there is an oppressive regime. And well, they talk about that in the crystal world. I have friends that are uh, gemologists, that sure, crystal rock hounds, I guess they call themselves. But they talk about the same thing. You're getting these beautiful minerals, but are they coming from China? Are they 
dug up in these unethical, environmentally unsound ways that destroy the environment. And then they send slaves, potentially children in to harvest these minerals. Right. And then they, they end up at the, the Tucson gem show for like these super cheap prices. You're like, whoa, you know, and because of the energy behind it and a lot of the people that are sensitive that care about these things as we all should don't accept those minerals because of the energy of the extraction the energy. And you're saying the same thing can happen to these mushrooms that are coming from these um, oppressed places where they're using slave labor and they have no environmental standards. All of that energy is in the mushroom. So if you're trying to heal yourself, you're trying to use these mushrooms to reactivate the healing energy in your body and, and, and work in synthesis with the mushrooms. You want to have the best mushrooms, not the ones that are made by slaves in an industrial setting in, in China. I mean, I would, I would say so for sure. I can't, I can't speak to any of the companies that are getting their mushrooms from China to say that's exactly what's happening. But there is um, the only excuse I've heard for why people won't transition to using North American grown mushrooms is the price. And for me, it's like that's kind of a, a cop out to. It's a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Are you scarcity? Or are you abundance? We talk about this on the podcast before in previous episodes. Sure. If you have a scarcity mindset, you're worried about having your little bit of money. You're you're getting unethical products in order to save this little bit of money, not opening up to the infinite abundance of life and the universe and the divinity of everything and saying, well, I'm creating an ethically sound product. Therefore right. the resources will come into play to make me successful. Right. As opposed, can I sell it cheaper and make an extra 20% <laughs> on my margin? Right. Like, right. Yeah. You were, you want to have the products to attract those type of people. And uh, yeah, I think it's kind of like an old world approach. You know, I think, I think that there's a lot of transitions happening, um, beyond, uh, beyond the alchemical world, beyond the mycological world to a standard of ethics and, and how we live and on the earth. And I think maybe a lot of that is coming from them, but, but um, yeah, I think, I think we have a lot to learn and a lot to think about. And, and also, you know, it's a scarcity mindset, but when you're exporting all of that um, economic wealth out of your economy to another economy that doesn't benefit, you know, what's the difference between that and between putting it back in. And then maybe, right. maybe that's where that scarcity is like that scarcity mindset's like creating even more depravity because, because then you just sent out, you're, you're, all, just fe all that you're money. feeding it, you're feeding it. It's, it's creating itself. Whether right. if you kept the money in the community, you trusted, you had faith, which we talk about so much on this. You had the absolute yeah. faith then it would all work out because your products, like you said, you have local fruiting body mushrooms, all Northwest. It's the highest quality products that I've ever seen in this realm. It's mind blowing to me. And you know, if people are hearing this and they're super excited as they should be, I want all of you to go to www.feralfungi, F-U-N-G-I, feralfungi.com. Look at these products because they're going to help you. They're going to elevate you. They're going to do more for you than similar products that you might already have. This is exponentially higher quality. And I often say, if you're going to do substances, if you're going to eat food, if you're going to take whatever you're going to take, make sure it's the absolute highest quality. And that's what I feel about feral fungi. I feel like it is the absolute highest quality and I give it my highest recommendation. Well, thanks, man. That's a... <laughs> It's a, a, a big uh, compliment. Well, I, I'm very excited to be here, and I just want to thank you. As we close our podcast, I just want to thank you, Jason Scott, for being with us, and uh, we hope to have you on again as this podcast develops. You know, we want to touch base with you 
to get the alchemical perspective on various things that may develop as time continues and also the mycological perspective is that okay can we bring you back on in the future absolutely i mean i feel like it was a really fun conversation and we just skimmed the surface of a lot of different topics and we could probably make whole episodes out of each and every one of those topics and then peripheral topics to those so i'm down and we can go for as long as we want i'm going to bring a lunch next time we can sit here for four hours <laughs> we can have an incredible time but thank you so much jason on that note i guess we're out of here midnight on earth awesome thanks for having me thanks bro